Welcome to Behave Intelligently, an uncensored exploration of behavior in the workplace, life, and the larger world. Behave Intelligently is co-hosted by fellow behavioral enthusiasts, Jay Johnson and Mark Garrison, and produced by the amazingly talented team at Coeus Creative Group. Thank you for joining this week's edition, where we're going to talk about persuasion. So Mark, you had come up with the topic for this one, which was really exciting to me. This is one of my favorite things in the world to talk about. What made you, what persuaded you, if you will, to want to talk about persuasion this week? You know, our, our last episode, we talked about having difficult conversations. And, you know, in that discussion, we talked about sort of the negative conversations, maybe letting someone go, baking, uh, breaking bad news to someone. But we also talked about maybe having a difficult conversation about a raise or promotion, things like that. And I thought, well, you know, maybe we could talk about persuasion in terms of what is it? How does it work? You know, does it apply to those types of scenarios? Like if I want to go and get a raise or a promotion, um, you know, when I'm making that case to my boss, I have to do some level of persuading, I would assume. Um, and maybe, maybe that's not persuasion. So I thought, well, let's have a discussion on that and, you know, help our listeners understand how they can make cases in those scenarios and maybe how to persuade them to get, um, new customers, new business, things along those lines. Well, and I think you also intuitively know that I'm a complete nerd on this topic. Uh, having my degree in communication, did a lot of study of rhetorical persuasion and all of that fun stuff. And then obviously we've had plenty of conversations on behavioral intelligence. And one of our kind of primary aspects of it is influencing other people's behavior, which could be called persuasion. So I, I'm super excited to talk about this one. Obviously, you can't, you can, if you could see me through the podcast, you would see the smile on my face. But let's get into that because I think you bring up a, an interesting point, you know, whether we're influencing or asking somebody to give us a raise, whether we are saying, hey, I'd like to go see this movie, or whether we are doing something larger like a pitch. People oftentimes think of persuasion, I think, as that super large persuasive message or an advertisement. But in reality, I think persuasion goes a lot more to the micro. We are constantly persuading people to agree with us, to believe us, uh, uh, to see our side of a story or anything else. And I think that there's such a difficulty in defining persuasion that people don't realize that they're constantly persuading and constantly being persuaded. So <laughs> if you were to think about persuasion in terms of how do we define something like persuasion, what's maybe one thing that comes into your head right away? Uh, how to define persuasion. I, you know, for me, it's, you know, my background, I mean, I spent more than 15 years working in the political space. And so I've had my fair share of doing persuading. And a lot of that was all on um, messaging that went to um, people's belief system. Sure. And so to me, that that's, that's, I don't know if that's answering your question specifically, but that's my background and how I approach, I've always approached the uh, persuasion. 
Well, and it's interesting because, you know, political, political communication, political messaging and all of that is literally its own sets of degrees inside of universities because it is so uh, particular in some cases, but it has that larger application. I mean, you really are messing with beliefs, attitudes, emotions, etc. Um, you know, when I think about persuasion, I often look at it and, and whenever we're doing like a presentation on persuasion, or if we're teaching sales team persuasive tactics, there's such a blur sometimes what people understand of between, well, what's persuasion versus what's influence versus what's um, manipulation, what is, you know, twisting those strings from behind. I think we can get into some of that ethics conversation in a bit. But what I like to look at is persuasion as change. I'm changing something, my influence message, my language, my environment, any of those things can be persuasive and it's instituting some form of a change. And I like to look at it in kind of four different human categories, beliefs, attitudes, emotions, and behavior. And I think that if you think about messaging, whether it's advertising, whether it's political communications, whether it is sales forces trying to get people to buy their product over a different product, they're changing the recipient of the messages, one of those four things, behavior, belief, attitudes, or emotions. And I would agree with that. I mean, as you're explaining that, I think back to what I've done in marketing, whether it's for corporations, for uh, political stuff, we are kind of hitting on those. Uh, we're hitting on the beliefs, uh, their their core values, um, maybe attitudes, um, you know, their emotion. I mean, emotion is definitely a factor when trying to persuade someone. Um, and behaviors, I mean, we're a behavior-based company, so I, I think that's a big focus there. Um, but I'd never really thought about it, you know, previously as that sort of a structure. And so I think that is a smart uh, way to create kind of buckets or categories. When I think about it, so whenever we do this presentation and I talk about this sort of definition or this definition that we've created, I, I always ask, okay, well, which one do you think is the hardest for somebody to change? Do you think it's harder for them to change their belief, their attitude, their emotion, or their value. And I always posit it as persuade me. Uh, now, given that you know our background and our company focus, I, before we get into what I make my persuasive argument on, what do you think most people assume is the hardest thing to change? Most, I would say most people probably think, well, that's a tough one. I would say most people are probably in the belief system. Uh, you're changing predict. beliefs like that's yeah that they think that that is such a core um thing that just there's no way you're ever going to change someone's mind and that is the super interesting thing because your prediction capabilities are on point sir everybody generally says well it's the hardest to change beliefs and i try to make a persuasive argument and again there's no i don't have you know, thousands of research studies to back this up, but I actually say I find it to be more difficult to persuade a behavioral change than it is a belief structure change. And I use this example, and I take the example of, say, somebody that is a smoker, right? That smoker, most smokers at this point in time, 
have a belief that smoking is bad for you. They believe the science, they understand that there is an impact uh, that smoking has on your health, your lungs, your longevity, et cetera. They may even have a negative attitude towards it. They may dislike it. They may dislike the smell. They may dislike having to be going outside. So their attitude uh, a framework is against this thing or the, against this, you know, this concept. They may have emotional dystopia on it. They may have regret every time they do it. They may feel guilty, feel bad. They may have all of these negative emotions associated with it. And yet they still go out every hour into the frigid cold or anything else. Their behavior doesn't match their belief, their attitude, or their emotions. And I think that that's a unique aspect of behaviors that we have choice and we can choose behaviors that are aligned with our personality and disaligned with our personality. They can be behaviors aligned with our beliefs or disaligned with our beliefs. Even taking it out of that context, I mean, if we think about the number of, if we think about the number of things like uh, religious beliefs or belief structures that people don't necessarily follow to the letter, just because you have the belief doesn't mean that you're only going to eat fish on Fridays, you know, during the Lent season. You may make a mistake. Now, some people will follow with the behaviors, but sometimes we make mistakes or behavioral mistakes and we ask for forgiveness. It's disaligned with those different structures. So that's why I make this argument. And again, it's all about persuasion, right? You can persuade me differently, but that's why I make the argument. It's oftentimes, I think, more difficult to change a behavior than it is a belief, an attitude, or an emotion. And you know, I think that makes sense. I mean, beliefs, oftentimes, you know, people have beliefs based on what's going on. And if something changes or impacts them differently as a person, they might have a different belief or that might change in, in um, it, it's funny because this ties into, I've been watching during uh, the COVID times here, catching up on some TV shows. And one of them is The Blacklist. Oh, I, I love you've seen that the blacklist. show. Oh, it's a great so I've been kind of kind of catching up on some of that. And uh, I would say that show's definitely one that has some some persuasion in there and sure. might be good references for our ethical discussion. <laughs> right. <But> one, of them, <laughs> one of them was um, one of the episodes they the the person on the blacklist that they were going after was uh impregnated a man who was anti-abortion mm, yeah it was a it was a, a governor who created a law that banned abortion they impregnated him and then he left the state to another state to get an abortion yeah and not to go down a political discussion on that but his belief system changed pretty quick. Sure, sure. And, and that's something that I think is, you know, that's a great metaphor for how sometimes we have a belief structure until that belief structure is inconsistent with the world that we're living in. And that belief structure can change very quickly. Our behaviors are what follow some of those different aspects. So, yeah. yeah. No, it was just that, that I just saw that episode recently and I thought, well, that's, that person's beliefs did a whole 180. So, I mean, I could see um, how behavior might be the hardest one to change. Yeah. So I think one of the things that we need to think about, especially being a behavioral company, is how do people like process 
persuasion because if we're unaware of persuasive messages or how often like you are bombarded with thousands and thousands of persuasive messages every single day everything from the layout of a a store to the messaging that's on the wall to the uh to the customer service person that says would you like to add on a security package with that all of that is intended persuasive messaging so how do we actually process persuasion or how do we react to persuasion? And, you know, this is one of those things where I found the works of uh, two communication authors from literally 1981 that still kind of hold some of the model today. And they say that there's two different ways or two different ways that our brain essentially looks at persuasion, central processing and then peripheral processing. Central processing meaning uh, we're focused on it. So if I hand you a piece of paper and I say, read this, digest it, and tell me what you think, you're going to look at it, you're going to focus on it. That's central processing. Peripheral processing is all of those elements that are occurring outside that may not necessarily be the focal points. For example, there is a great study that has been conducted that uh, when you have smell, for example, if your office, say that somebody walks into your office and there is an odor that is not necessarily uh, a kind odor or there is an odor of mold or anything else like that, something that's bad, that actually has an impact on how that person perceives a message that's being given to them versus if they walk in and your office smells like lavender, that may have an impact on the message that you're giving them. So these peripheral things that are occurring have an impact on the way that we may react to a persuasive message, which is probably great for like a sensi or, you know, the, uh, the essential oils that are like, hey, make your office smell good, because why? It has an impact on peripheral processing. <laughs> so Is that why a new car always has a certain smell? There's a huge part of the psychology of persuasion. I think we'll probably have to do this in multiple episode parts, but yes, absolutely. There is certainly an advantage to being able to control some of those peripheral factors, you know, and other peripheral factors are simple things like, for example, if I say, take two of these and call me in the morning, well, that's one thing versus if I'm wearing a medical jacket and I'm standing inside of a doctor's office and I say, take two of these and call me in the morning. The message is the same, but the authority context, that's peripheral, right? The message is what you're processing. Take two, call you in the morning. Central processing. Peripheral processing is influence from authority, influence from liking, influence from trust, context, attitude, all of those different elements. Now, when we think about that, it gets really, really scary how much we are influenced by the peripheral processing aspect of our brain. And I think that that's something that we should kind of have a conversation about. Now, you know, when you do these trainings, I'm sure you have slides up with some, some charts or flow charts or examples. Since people are trying to listen and process all this and they might be driving their car while listening to us. What would be a very specific example of, uh, or a difference between the central and the peripheral that, they, that our, person, our listeners can relate to? 
All right. So I'm going to tell a kind of embarrassing story. Um, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to laugh too, too hard at this one. Uh, I'll give you a great example of the switch between central processing and peripheral processing. And it goes back to like when we, when I just started the first iterations of our company in 2007, 2008, and one of our, uh, one of our former business partners of that company, he and I were going to a lunch. And if you're from the Detroit area, we were going to Union Street, fantastic, fantastic gumbo and jambalaya, but we're heading to lunch and we're going to pitch uh, our services to a potential client. We're in a great conversation. We're strategizing, we're talking, we pull into the drive, we pull towards the back, uh, right off of Woodward. So we pull towards the back of the parking lot and we park the car and we get out of the car and we're deep in this discussion and we're, we're thinking through it. We're centrally processing everything about this potential pitch that's coming up. In the meantime, a gentleman approaches us and he's got a, a, a vest on and he's got parking tags and everything else like that. And he says, $5. So as we're still continuing our conversation, I reach into my pocket, Terry reaches into his pocket, both kind of naturally to grab $5 to pay for parking. I look at Terry, I'm like, I don't have any cash on me, do you? And he's like, no, I, do, I don't have any cash on me either. I'm like, don't worry, there's a bank literally right here on the corner. I'll just go hit the ATM real quick. So I walk over towards the bank and Terry is then escorted to the size, the, the parking attendant says, hey, come over here with me real quick so we don't get hit by a car. And Terry's like, sure. So Terry's still kind of deep in thought. They're having small talk. I go hit the ATM, pull out a $20 bill and I come back. And as I get back, something had lit up in Terry's mind. He's like, I've got it. I've got this idea. Here we go this is what we should do. And I hand the $20 to the parking attendant and he pulls out change and he starts going through it. He's like, guys, I don't have the right change. Let me go, you know, get this switched over at the bank. I'll be right back. Happens all the time. So Terry and I are back into central processing our conversation about strategy. About two minutes go by and Terry looks at me and it, and it just clicks. That guy's not coming back. And all of a sudden I'm like, what just happened here? And I run over to the bank because I'm now looking inside. And of course, no one's there. I look down the street. I look down. The app, no one's there. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what just happened? And as I'm walking back towards the restaurant, towards Terry, where the, where the restaurant is from the bank, you know, which is across the parking lot, essentially, I look up and I see this gigantic sign on the wall that says, there is no parking attendant on duty before five o'clock wow, my brain's exploding. Terry and I promise we'll never talk about this in public because <laughs> two people that, you know, have studied persuasion have just literally been completely conned by a right. parking vest and some parking tickets. We missed yeah. all of these other signs because all I saw was the parking vest and the parking ticket. That was enough persuasion for me to not ask, well, what are your credentials? And they did a really good job of positioning us. So that way we couldn't necessarily see that sign or we weren't looking at that sign, keeping our attention. And it's so bad that I went to the bank and pulled out a $20 bill. I didn't just lose the $5, I lost $20. And I went to the bank to get it for the person. In retrospect, probably one of the best $20 investments 
A, because it's been a great story, uh, and B, because it's a good, simple reminder that when we're not centrally processing something, there's so many other things that can just draw us into a persuasive appeal that we may not be paying attention to. So that's almost like the, uh, what's the video I've seen with the uh, dancing gorilla across the screen? Is that oh, yeah. similar, similar type situation? Yeah. It's a Everybody's focused thing. on the, the kids playing basketball or something like that. Well, and so I've studied a lot on sleight of hand and I'm not, I don't actually have the skill set to perform it. So no worries on anybody's, but attention and how we provide our focus or our attention. So in that video, they say, count how many times the team in the white shirts pass the basketball and there's a team in the black shirts that are also passing basketballs back and forth. You're watching, trying to count, trying to keep track of this. And a guy in a gorilla suit walks by, beats his chest, stops in the middle of this and just keeps going. Uh, spoiler alert, there's a gorilla. If you do go watch this video <laughs> and you might watch it, if you've never seen it before, you might go, there's no possible way that I would have missed that. And more than 70% of the people that watch that video, 60 or 70% missed the gorilla the first time through. And then they rewind it and it's like, oh my gosh, that happened because we have limited capacity to focus our central processing. In the meantime, a lot of other things are occurring that may have an influence on us. So that's really important for people trying to get a persuasive message across, not to uh, make your environment too complicated at the same time, because it could work against you. So, and that's one of the super interesting things that Patty and Kakiopa had learned with this elaboration likelihood model. One of the things that they say is if you have a really compelling argument, if it's a very good, logically sound, logically structured, good persuasive appeal, limit out as many of the distractions as you possibly can, because those distractions will deter away from the good argument. If you've got a crappy argument or a very poor argument, play music, make it loud, do this, do all these other distracting techniques because it will actually detract from the awfulness of your argument. So you can even look at this from a psychological perspective and say, I could manipulate the environment to do what I want it to do. But that's something that I think that we need to talk about anytime that we have conversations about persuasion is, well, what's the difference? If you're armed with this psychological knowledge, if you can predict how people are going to react to situations, what stops you from manipulating them? Or how is that not manipulation? And I think that there's some gray area, obviously, with persuasion, but I think that that's an important conversation to have. So next time our listeners are out at the bar or something like that, and it's really loud and their cocktail seems a little weaker, a little more watered down, that might be a sign that, you know, maybe they're being persuaded or, or maybe manipulated with paying a price for a, a weaker cocktail, but they're being distracted by commotion, noise, all these other things to take their attention away. They've created an environment where your attention is no longer centrally processing and whether that's alcohol or, you know, if you've ever seen something where maybe at a certain event, they're providing beer, wine, cocktails, entertainment or anything else like that. And then they hit you with a persuasive appeal to make a donation. Uh, I'm pointing towards the political side of things here. Uh, you know, you might see those things and 
whether it's intentional or whether it's unintentional, it has an impact on whether or not we have compliance. And that's a huge word that we talk about in persuasion, compliance. Are they compliant with the message? And that, that word sounds terrible. It has so much baggage to it. But yeah. persuasion is also known as compliance gaining. I'm gaining your compliance for a change in beliefs, attitudes, emotions, or behaviors. So let's kind of jump into that ethical discussion. Um, is what the, are these businesses um, behaving ethically? You know, is that bar behaving ethically to get me to buy that, that drink, that cocktail and, and not giving me a quality product, but giving me, you know, all these other distractions or the, the company selling a slightly, we'll call it crappier service or product, but you know, they have this um, distracting environment that doesn't make me see the true situation. So I would look at it this way in, in your, in your bar example, if, that would be what I would call kind of a bait and switch. I started giving you a pr quality product and then I reduced the quality of the product intentionally in order to save money after you've already started to purchase the product. That would be a little bait and switchy for me. Um, I would call that probably a manipulation. Uh, I would say that that would, that would, you know, and when we say unethical, there's obviously varying degrees of unethical Enron and, you know, cashing out on a whole bunch of people's money. That might be the, you know, a super high level of unethical communication, persuasion, behavior modeling, you know, reducing uh, half an ounce of alcohol out of your thing, I don't think is prison worthy, unethical behavior. Sure. But I would say that, yeah, if you're doing that intentionally at that point in time, I'm trying to manipulate the market or I'm trying to manipulate your purchasing behaviors. So what I look at here, and, and this is my bright line, is we all persuade, everything is persuasion. What is my intent? Is my intent to influence or is my intent to do harm? Am I trying to, if you were in a situation, so say for example, I make a persuasive appeal to buy uh, one can of soda versus a different can of soda. The consumer wants soda. The desire is to have soda. If I'm positioning mine ethically and I'm providing accurate, if I say, this is gonna give you superpowers and you're gonna be a better human being, well, some of them do that, but it's you know either tongue in cheek or advertising language. If I'm not lying about the contents about this, if I'm being, ethical in my honest delivery of this is why you should prefer Coke over Pepsi. That's one form of, I think, ethical persuasion. I can persuade you to sure. like one over something different. We do that all the time. If I lie to you and say, uh, you know, this has magical powers and this one doesn't, and I knowingly am lying to you, that is where we get into that unethical. So I think part of it comes from intentionality. Is my intention to dupe you or to uh, create a ruse in which you are not given all the information, not being able to make an honest assessment of my persuasive appeal? Or is my intention to just gently nudge you or influence you in one direction over another? Does that make sense? Yeah, so if, if 
you're just kind of trying to direct me in a certain path as long as you're not doing anything shady, uh, incorrect, lying or anything like that. That's just persuading me to go that route. And if I, if I choose that route, then your persuasion was successful. Um, where, where is that fine line other than, um, you know, obvious of lying or anything like that. <laughs> sure. Well, and I think that that's the hard point is that there's very, the, the fine line is a blurry line and sometimes dotted. You know, we can look at uh, oftentimes unethical persuasion is only unearthed after the impact of that persuasive message. So I would say what, if I'm making- Or does it, does it vary based on, on, on individuals too, on maybe where what they view as to be ethical and not ethical? I think so. I think it can be very subjective. Like if I'm, say I am a uh, promoter of Tylenol over ibuprofen, aspirin over ibuprofen, take the brands out of it. I push uh, aspirin and not ibuprofen. Um, at that point in time, if later I find out that aspirin actually has really bad impacts on human beings, did, was that unethical persuasion? I didn't know that. That wasn't something that was known to me. Now, if I push it after I know that, that's unethical. But if I didn't know that, well, that's going to be a hindsight 2020 thing. Maybe now I need to use persuasion to say, don't use aspirin, and that should be my more focused. Um, so I think part of it is, what are the consequences for the person that's receiving the persuasive message? Is it something that's going to harm them? Is it something that's going to be neutral? Is it something that I'm convincing you to do something that is not in your best interest uh, or that harms your best interest, your long-term interest? If I persuade you to buy Coke over Pepsi, uh, your long-term interest, you were going to buy one of those anyways, right? That's not, I wouldn't say right. that that is my ethical problem, your choice to purchase. If I if I promoted or persuaded you to buy a harmful substance over a healthy substance, and I knowingly have, uh, you know, and I know that this is a harmful substance, well, now we're starting to get into that sort of gray area because we do know that there's products out there like, for example, alcohol, which is legal, which can be a harmful substance. So is that persuasive to promote my alcohol products? I, I don't know. That's a real big question. Um, yeah, if I'm if I am thirsty and I am going on a path of buying something to quench my thirst, right? All those folks out there, all those companies are trying to persuade me to buy their beverage, whether it's alcohol, energy drinks, you know, soda, pop, water, juice. Um, I'm sure there are different people who would say, well, buying anything other than water is not a good choice. So anybody trying to sell you on their item might be uh, a little more unethical, but really it might just be companies are just selling their products too. Yeah, and we see things like disclaimer language on a whole host of different things and transparency, you know, drink responsibly, or this may be the side effects of this. It may solve your challenge, but these are known side effects of this. 
that starts to, you know, I guess, hedge on that ethics continuum. Where is it ethical? If I persuade you to come see an Avengers movie with me, rather than you persuading me to go see a scary movie, there's no harm. There's no intention of making you uh, sad or angry or upset. It's just a, a mutual sort of negotiation that has a persuasive outcome to it. Those are harmless instances, not, you know, those are ethical instances of persuasion. If I persuade you to go eat a whole bowl of wheat-based spaghetti, knowing that you're uh, gluten-free and you have a severe gluten allergy, but I want you to eat this spaghetti because that's what I want, now I'm starting to go, my intention of persuading you has my own personal benefit to it, and it has a harmful effect on you. I would say that that would be an instance of unethical persuasion. Well, you know, persuasion and ethics, I think, is uh, a topic that could easily be an entire series <laughs> of episodes for us. Um, it's such a massive topic to really cover and to discuss. Hopefully, you know, today we've done a little bit to shed some light on persuasion and ethics. And, you know, I kind of feel like we're not giving this top, this this whole topic of persuasion a, a full coverage today. So I'm thinking maybe our next one, we might have a part two on persuasion. Yeah, I think we could do some influence tools or some persuasive mechanics, both from the perspective of how can you be more persuasive, but also how can you shield yourself from persuasion? So if I was to offer a tip for today is be very, very mindful of something like peripheral processing and understand how persuasive something might be because you read it in your favorite magazine. If you read it in your favorite magazine, it must be true. Or if you saw it on your favorite news source, it must be true. That may not be the case. You may be falling victim to source, credibility, peripheral persuasion. That's something that I think, if you walk away with any tip from this one, be mindful of how you're processing arguments or persuasive appeals versus how you're getting persuaded by a bunch of things that you might not be processing. Do you have I think any others that you want to add to that? I think that's excellent advice. Um, no, I think, I think that's, that's a good point. And I think uh, I'm excited for, you know, our, our next episode where we further dive into the topic of persuasion. Yeah. So thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Behave Intelligently. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. Let us know what you think about this episode and maybe email your persuasive thoughts to us at podcast at Coeus Creative Group. We'd love to hear any time that maybe you've been persuaded or that you provided a persuasive argument. Share that with us and maybe it gets incorporated into our next episode when we talk about influence. So visit our website at coeuscreativegroup.com. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram, and tune in next week when we talk more about behaving intelligently.